In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've been to the DMV recently, but it's a slightly different game during COVID, during the pandemic. I got to experience this firsthand this past Monday. There was some uh, business related to a, a, a title that I had to take care of. I'd been putting it off and off and off and off. And finally, uh, I had to get this title. And so I looked online to find where I could have this done. It turned out Mineral, Virginia was the closest spot where you can have a walk-in visit to a DMV. But that's a little bit deceptive because I got there at 9.30 in the morning and there's no walking in to anywhere. It's an outside line and at by 9.30 it was already quite long. Now, a few moments later, the temperature dropped about 20 degrees and it started raining. And I asked the people around me in line because everyone was sort of already commiserating that early. I said, you know, how long do you think this will last? And they said, well, once it starts raining, a few people will leave, but you're here for at least four hours. I thought, four hours, please, God Almighty, uh, get me out of here before then. Uh, it turned out it took five and a half hours for me to reach the head of the line. But I did, finally, around 3 p.m., I got to the head of the line. Uh, my transaction took 30 seconds, and then I was on the road uh, homeward. This was what I consider to be a somewhat Soviet experience. Uh, and, and those of us in line actually bonded. People of all walks of life, we all became good friends through this shared suffering. Uh, how could this possibly be the best way to handle our motor vehicle issues? Uh, there was a man who I saved his spot in line because he had just come from physical therapy to get a handicapped uh, sign for his car uh, and was expected to stand outside in the rain for four hours uh, as a handicapped person. Uh, it's just absurd. Well, I say that by way of introduction to this today's gospel, which is from John, in which Jesus says the phrase, referring to his disciples, to his followers, that they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. He repeats that exact phrase twice. And he is making a contrast between the world and himself or between the, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And there's a contrast. Again, there is, there's some level of antagonism. There's some deep distinction. And there will always be this sort of distinction. And I'm not talking about people saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas at Starbucks. I'm saying that the perspective that Jesus Christ brings, the values, his economy, if you will, is at odds with what the world values and what the world thinks is important. But what does Jesus mean when he refers to the world? Because that's a big term. He uses it quite a bit. Now, there are a lot of different ways to define the world, but today I'm just going to mention two. I feel like at the DMV, I encountered the world. And by that, I mean a sense of impersonal power, uh, big bureaucratic structures, uh, with something that does not seem designed necessarily to encourage human flourishing, uh, or at least is indifferent to it. 
perhaps you've had a, a less benign experience with uh, you've some encounter with the criminal justice system or the IRS, um, some, some larger mechanism uh, that you can refer to as the world that you just don't believe has your best interests at heart. I remember someone saying uh, about to a soldier um, in a novel, it doesn't matter how much you love Uncle Sam, he'll never love you back. Now, many of us design our entire lives around avoiding interactions with this form of the world. We find it to be dehumanizing, overwhelming, vaguely threatening, uh, one false move and you have to come back Monday or come back in three weeks or make an appointment and the first appointment is in August. I don't know what it is, but I know that the world in terms of the impersonal power structures that seem to uh, be inescapable and were inescapable in Jesus' time as well, uh, they, they produce dread in the human spirit. And uh, Jesus Christ is uh, not involved with that. He is not here. He did not come to set up a new impersonal bureaucracy to get things done slowly. No, instead, he is characterized uh, by contradistinction, uh, by personal attention to human suffering and those who have, in fact, been cast out and ill-served by the impersonal power structures. This Jesus does have your best interests at heart, and he is both stunningly individual in his attention as well as uh, broad in his uh, understanding that all people are in need of that precise individual focus. So that's one way to think of the world as sort of impersonal power. The second sense in which we might understand the world is as a seductive power, a seducer, something that acts like it has your best interest at heart, but really just wants to monetize your dysfunction, get what it needs from you. What do I mean by that? Well, I caught an interesting glimpse this week. The, uh, one of the great values, I think, of our time, and um, it's, it, this is enabled by technology, but it predates that certainly by many, many thousands of years, is um, the allure of mastery, the promise of mastery. I'm talking about the yearning to, quote, get on top of things, to clear the decks of your life before you start that next project, to wait until some imaginary future point where you'll have your life in order, and then real, real life can finally begin. Of course, all of our lives attest to the fact that this, this point, it never arrives. Uh, what the, the Onion had a wonderful headline one time, says, man gets life in order for 36 minutes. Um, but it's still tremendously seductive. In fact, it's more than seductive. Mastery is a fiction that undermines sanity. It is a driver, a generator of enormous anxiety and suffering and the sense that you're always falling short. And as such, it sells. Boy, does it sell. One of my favorite writers, uh, Oliver Berkman, suggests that we all give up on trying to reach a phase of life that's problem-free and instead treat our pile of unread books and, unread and unfinished projects as a river instead of a bucket that you think you'll someday empty. Well, for those who are at home in the world, uh, and the, which is all of us, Berkman's words, his, 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 they run against the grain. Because what he's saying is that you and I 
are limited and finite and ultimately mortal. We are not capable of definitively mastering anything. It's just not in our uh, nature. We don't have that much bandwidth. Uh, it may sound tragic to embrace a view of life that has limitation at its center, but it has the upside of not being completely impossible. Well, Jesus is not. He did not come to preach more mastery, to, to seduce you with some scheme that will promise something it never delivers. Jesus does not try to take advantage for his own sake or benefit. He, he, he preached surrender instead of mastery. I mean, Christianity as a religion, that it, it undermines mastery in a pretty shocking way. I mean, most people who try to follow the commandments or simply live according to the example of Christ, they find that it's, it's really difficult and not in the sort of a hard workout uh, kind of good difficult sense, uh, but difficult because it involves repeated failure, which may continue your entire earthly life and yet also will keep you fully dependent on the grace and forgiveness of God. So no, thankfully, Jesus did not uh, follow the way of the world. He did not offer some sort of seductive carrot and stick, you will be loved or you will belong once you've proven yourself or once you've cleared the decks emotionally or spiritually. In fact, in this very speech in John, which is in Gethsemane, he says that what makes people his, what matters about people, is that God has given those people, those followers, to him. That his, th these followers, they belong right now as a matter of God's goodness rather than their own. It is the, uh, the choosing of God rather than the earning of humans that matters. Let me close with an illustration. The, the documentary, My Octopus Teacher, just took home the Academy Award for Best Documentary. It's on Netflix, and I, I suggest uh, it's, it's a great thing to watch with even your children. It's a remarkable feat of filmmaking, and it's a, the story of one man, Craig Foster in South Africa, uh, who develops a relationship with, yes, an octopus. Of course, it's really about his own journey back to the human race and himself after uh, years of disillusionment and sort of breakdown. We watch, though, as Craig, who's a diver and uh, has a sort of a, lives on the coast, he discovers this octopus in the very, its, its exact habitat. And once he discovers this octopus, he begins to visit its den every single day. Uh, he's captivated by this strange alien creature. Now, at first, he takes the stance of outside observer, almost scientifically just wanting to document he doesn't want to break the barrier. He doesn't want to upset or influence the habitat. He doesn't want to intrude. But then something unexpected happens. You see, he feels he doesn't belong. But we watch as the octopus gradually becomes less and less frightened of Craig. Trust slowly builds between this man and this strange animal. And there's nothing impersonal about it. It's stunningly personal, and it's, it's, nor is it self-aggrandizing in any way. In fact, we watch until one day as he's filming, the octopus reaches out its small tentacle 
and touches Craig on the finger and just makes this connection. Now, when this happened, when this barrier is broken through the initiative of the alien creature, it's the turning point of the film. And not only that, it's the turning point of this man's life. He, uh, this octopus was not content for Craig to be an impartial observer. This octopus, she, she draws him in, and in fact, as the end of the movie, uh, you see as they develop this very sweet relationship that I had no idea was possible with an octopus. And Craig says something summing up basically the whole of the film, and this is not really a spoiler because I've, I've already spoiled it for you. Um, he says this about the octopus. He eulogizes her by saying, what she taught me was to feel that you're a part of this place, not a visitor. She taught me to feel that I was a part of this place, that I belonged, not that I was an outsider or a visitor. And Craig says, understatement of the year, he says, that is a huge difference. Tears in his eyes. One last thing. You know, you and I, you may be able to escape the world out there, the DMVs and the productivity, getting on top of things, schemes and books, but you can't escape the world in here. You see, the fault line between the world and the way of Christ, it runs straight through all of us. If we're honest, we know that we contribute to structures of impersonal power that overwhelm and perpetuate all sorts of malice. We know that we are complicit in all sorts of seductive schemes, not only with our dollars, but with our energy and our conviction. And I think we know that this comes at a detriment to not only ourselves, but those around us. Yet perhaps this is also why it is such good news that Jesus did not escape the world either, but met its terrible onslaught with open arms. In fact, Christ allowed the world to, yes, master him by putting him to death on a cross. And yet in this Easter season, as in every season, we remember that the world did not have the final word, but Jesus Christ himself, risen from the grave. Such that those same open arms, those arms that were open to the world, they are now open to you. They embrace you as one who, yes, belongs. And one who is holding on to you and will not let go, come what may. Amen.